Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Allspring Global Investments. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but the final control remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Henrietta Pacmont, who is the head of global fixed income team at Allspring Global Investments, formerly known as Wells Fargo Asset Management. Henrietta, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. So, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into investing? I, I noticed that in your bio it says you studied astrophysics at Cambridge University. How do you go from that to investing and what was sort of your focus? Uh, well, I like technical things. Um, I like uh, to understand how things work. Um, so I think that's what got me into astrophysics um, at, uh, at university. Uh, and then um, the attraction of going to work in the financial markets was to get that understanding, but of the world at large. So I think that was the, the transition. Um, so I started work um, at uh, AXA Investment Managers uh, a few years ago now, uh, before moving to BGI and, and where I am now. Um, so I've always been in the fixed income markets um, and gradually gravitated more to the credit side, um, where, I, where I am today. But it's quite a difference between astrophysics and, and investing. Is, is there any overlap other than sort of maths behind it? Oh, math, definitely. Um, curiosity, definitely. Um, having to sort of look around you and, and figure out how things work and how the news that you get, um, you, you have that exercise of interpreting it and then expressing it in your portfolios. And I think that's really what I enjoy. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So, I mean, a lot of focus today is on inflation and uh, we hear about stagflation, we hear a little bit about future maybe disinflation. Where do you sit uh, on, on that picture? Are you concerned about this? Do you think it will drag out a, a long time? It's, it's definitely a big topic. Um, and what we've seen in the markets, um, even in the last couple of days, in terms of movements on the interest rate side and what the central banks are doing, it is the focus at the moment. Uh, now, different geographies have got different drivers, I would argue. Um, if you look at the US, you've got a very strong consumer, and that's what the Fed is trying to calm down at this point in time. Um, if you look at Europe, slightly different. Um, we're clearly closer to the conflict on, in Eastern Europe. As a result, energy is really the driver in terms of uh, inflation there. Um, so the central banks have made it clear this week, we've had another number of them move, um, that this is what their focus is. And if they have to sacrifice growth in the process, they're going to do it. 
Um, so I think that really has been the message this week. Yeah. So to, to what degree are you concerned about recessions? Because I think when we look at the US, uh, um, the chair of the Fed, Jerome Powell, has already said that, you know, the bigger mistake would be to not get inflation under control. So he almost flagged that he is fine with a recession or two. Um, how, how do you see that? I, I think, you know, it, it is what they're trying to address at the moment. Um, and to an extent, um, if you look at the tools that they have, they're reasonably blunt, right? We're talking about um, moving your short rates. You're talking about tightening your financial um, uh, conditions. And that takes time to sort of filter through in a first instance to the economy, to slow down the economy, and then it'll impact inflation. So you've got that sort of staged process. Um, and uh, at the moment, they're trying to see, well, how much do they need? Um, and we need to see a bit more color in terms of the economy. We need to see how that's sort of filtering down. Um, so they've been hiking for a little while now. So we should start to see um, economic impact. And it should, at some point, uh, filter into the inflation numbers uh, as well. Yeah. How much grasp do you think uh, um, central banks have on, on uh, inflation? Because I understand that inflation is actually quite a difficult concept to, to sort of deal with because there is a, an element of uh, behavior in there as well that, you know, once prices go up, then people react to that. And even though that pressure might, they might get rid of that pressure, that behavioral aspect is still there. And that, that's what they're trying to break. What they want to, to uh, address is a, a, the persistency element. Um, so dial back about a year, we were talking about transitory inflation um, and the fact that um, yeah, it was going to be coming out of COVID, a bit of enthusiasm in terms of the, of the consumer um, getting out, exploring all the services that they couldn't do for the past year and a half or two years. Um, so we've seen that. Um, then you actually had the hit on the energy side, which the central banks didn't necessarily anticipate, but you know has impacted um, uh, pricing um, uh, in, in the economy. And yes, you've had these sort of shocks, one after the other in short succession, uh, which has embedded the discussion around pricing and rising prices a little more in the economy. Um, so I think that's really what the central banks are looking to address. Uh, and you're starting to see, as you say, you know, a bit of a wave. So you have your energy prices going up. Uh, then you, know, you have your services going up because you have to pay for um, uh, energy and, and so on. Um, so you, you've got this sort of waterfall effect that we're seeing at this point in time and a broadening uh, of increases in prices. That's what they're looking to address. And they don't want it to embed. Now, being said, What's interesting to see is wages, right? What they really don't want to have is a sort of spiral where you have rising prices and rising wages, and, and that, that's really when inflation becomes more destructive. At the moment, still, um, on the wage front, we're seeing some rises, uh, but uh, not as much as inflation. So that's a silver lining if there is one. Yeah. Now, you look mostly after the, the European uh, market. What are some of the differences that you see there compared to, say, the US market? Um, so I mentioned one of those, you know, clearly inflation pressures due to energy um, and to a lesser extent food, but uh, are more pronounced, I would say, on the, on the European side. Um, and the Europeans have been reacting to that. 
Um, and there's a degree of can kicking into 2023 uh, to try and sort of smooth the process um, for the uh, for the consumer. Um, and if you look at the UK, also um, businesses as well with a business package coming out there. Um, so I think that that's one of the differences. Um, also, I would say that growth is less strong, tends to be less strong than in the US. Um, and I think the pricings that we're seeing there is are reflective of that, uh, be it in terms of credit spreads, be it in terms of rates at this point, and the behavior of the currency. Um, so a lot of that is of that sort of growth potential dif- differential um, is uh, in the price. Um, in the US, as I said, you know, strong consumer, and that that that's really what the Fed is trying to, to address. Now we are starting to see some cracks, which is probably a good thing. Um, you know, if you look at the the housing market and the activity in the housing market, uh, that has taken um, you know a, a, a bit of a turn down. Uh, we'll have to see what happens in terms of pricing, but that's the kind of thing that they would like to that they would like to see at this point. Yeah. So how does that sort of translate in, into your portfolio settings? Are you a bit more conservative in in your allocations? Um, I think given the volatility that we've got in the market at the moment, it's tough to make some um, you know, very pronounced calls. So I think that's, that's one element. Um, if we look at the portfolios, um, we've got a slight underweight on our on our interest rate side in our in our credit portfolios in particular. At this point, we're probably looking to close that, um, given the moves that we've seen, um, to to sort of have a pause for thought and, and see what comes next. Um, we do have a bit of um, an overweight in terms of credit spreads. Um, you know, we do we are starting to like the kind of spreads that we're seeing, particularly on the investment grade side where we're looking at companies that are larger, that have got more flexibility, that uh, that are better rated. Um, I think that makes sense there within reason. Still not too keen on credit duration. I think you know, we'll have to see how that how that evolves. Um, and we're seeing an active primary market. Um, you know, there has been less issuance this year um, in, in on the credit side of things. Uh, and you know, what issues are coming now are tending to come with a bit of a premium, some interesting spreads. Um, you know, we've got dry powder at the moment, so we're using some of that um, in the in the primary markets. Okay. So when we look at the, the market in, in fixed income, the, the sort of the, the, the bigger events tend to play more of a role than, than probably in the equity market. And, and we see a couple of major things happening in, in uh, Europe at the moment. Uh, you mentioned the, the war in Ukraine. How, how does things like that translate into investment decisions? It's been you know quite a start to the year. Um, yes, the the conflict in Ukraine has had a, a number of effects. I think one that that's maybe less obvious and um, something that that you know we've been careful to manage in the portfolios is the effect on utilities. Uh, because of the various sort of hedging mechanisms and so on, uh, that that is a sector that's been uh, seriously under pressure. Um, and to the point where we've seen government intervention um, and um, sovereign, um, taking over some of the institutions on the utility side, be it in Germany um, uh, more recently and, and in France. So I think that's an area where, for instance, we're underweight in our portfolios, uh, with the expectation that we're going to get plenty of issuance on the on the uh, utilities side. 
to fund their situation at the moment, but also actually to fund the transition uh, from a climate perspective. So we're expecting uh, um, them to come to, to the market and they're going to have to pay up um, when they when they come. Yeah, the the conflict in, in Ukraine and, and sort of the broader geopolitical tensions uh, um, have, have been sort of more of a recent topic, but we've seen a lot more attention recently for the energy transition that, that you just mentioned. How does that come into play on the credit side? Uh, there's obviously an expectation that there needs to be a lot of investment in this space to change the infrastructure, to have new technologies. Um, how does that translate on the credit side for opportunities? So, so it's been really interesting. I mean, there's been a lot done already to portfolios on the equity side. Uh, but I think um, if you look at asset owners, um, they're looking to broaden the scope of what they're doing from a, a climate uh, transition perspective. Um, and one of the next candidates is fixed income um, and credit in particular, and looking at their portfolios to see how um, they can meet, in some cases, their alignment targets, uh, and more and more institutions are looking at that and uh, committing uh, in various forms to um, net zero over the next uh, over the next few years and they have to look at that on their entire portfolios and that includes uh, that includes fixed income so we're seeing a lot of interest there a lot of figuring out how to uh, align portfolios on the credit side um, and we're also seeing a lot of innovation on the market side and what's available um, in terms of green bonds transition bonds uh, sustainability link bonds um, it's an area where we're seeing a lot of innovation and it, it is becoming a topic for issuers so um, when we meet them when they come to market, um, they will address questions around the transition and what their strategies are um, going forwards. Um, so very much a hot topic um, and is driving investment decisions and, and uh, repositionings of portfolios at the moment. Yeah. And from what I understand, uh, um, if you look sort of the history of addressing environmental issues, then there's sort of a long history on the equity side. But on the credit side, you can be more specific because of the instruments that have been issued. Does that help you sort of position the portfolio? Absolutely. I think you know, there's a richness in the credit markets um, that uh, you know, really lends itself well uh, to that kind of thing because you can look at the use of proceeds, uh, you can look at the subsidiaries that you invest in, uh, you know, particularly for larger investment-grade conglomerates. Um, they can have very different areas of their business um, that you can go and target uh, when investing in them. Um, so I think that's uh, one of the areas where you have to do your homework um, and sort of go and explore uh, what is available. Uh, but yes, a lot of opportunity to go and fund um, specific projects, um, specific uh, transformation uh, at an issuer level. With the war in Ukraine, there's been obviously a, sort of a, a disturbance in the energy market. Prices have risen for, for more fossil fuels. Do you think that has put a bit of a pause on investments uh, from company into the transition because they see that it can be quite volatile in the meantime? I think it's been a very interesting experiment. Under terrible con um, circumstances, and you'd have never wanted uh, to have a, a situation arise uh, as it has, however, I think it does bring a lot of um, uh, learning points to how we need to uh, think about the transition in years to come. Essentially, uh, we've been given a bit of an example of what it would look like if we had to go cold turkey 
um, in terms of financial, in terms of um, fossil fuels? Um, and you know, the answer isn't a pretty one. Um, you know, we're not ready for that. Um, so it is a question of having a very, a very thoughtful approach to um, uh, evolving business models over time um, on the on the corporates themselves, and indeed in terms of funding the transition um, going forwards. I think um, you, know, you have to sort of think about how um, you know, fossil fuel providers and energy providers uh, are going to participate in the transition because we believe that they need to participate in that transition. Uh, we need to see um, and plan um, you know, the electrification of the grid uh, which is going to have a big impact in terms of in terms of decarbonization. As a result, um, you, know, you have to think about your metals and miners and how they're going to be contributing. If you're electrifying your economy, guess what? You need some copper. Um, how does that work? How do you get that uh, going? So I think it's been an opportunity to really highlight um, the challenges of the transition, how um, you know, it needs to be thought about over years, um, not just sort of over the the next uh, next few weeks, uh, next uh, next few months. And uh, it's a process. It's going to be a process, um, and we need to facilitate that as asset owners and uh, asset managers. Yeah. So this is a very long term sort of transition. Correct. Um, does that also influence? credit on the duration side? I mean, do you see sort of longer uh, issuance associated with transition uh, themes? Um, yes. I mean, if you look at uh, some of it is, is linked to transition, some of it is, is linked to the sort of style of projects. Um, so yes, you know, if you look at um, you know, where different industries tend um, to issue in terms of maturities, if you look at your cyclical sectors, I'm thinking autos, for instance, uh, you know that'll be on the sort of shorter end of the spectrum uh, because investors need to have a bit of visibility. The auto sectors need to have a bit of visibility, so you you, you would expect them to be on the sort of short to medium uh, medium term. Um, as soon as you start talking about utilities. Yes, you know, they are prime candidates um, for, for issuing on the longer end, and we see issuance in that, uh, in that space from them. So yes, there is a degree of that uh, maturity um, um, coming in. Um, and it, it, it's also interesting to see some of the features of the bonds that are, that are coming out. Um, and um, you know, we're starting to see some financial penalties come into okay. coupon levels um, if certain metrics aren't respected, uh, be it from an ESG perspective will be it from a climate perspective. Um, and, and that's an interesting one because you have to measure those impacts and those impacts are going to take a few years to get going. Um, so you might be looking at setups you know, maybe a year before the maturity of the bond. Does that make a big difference? I think the jury's out on that one. Yeah. So these, these measurements and these penalties, how um, easy is it to get your head around it in terms of if we look at ESG research in itself, that there's a lot of different standards. There's not really a lot of uh, a general consensus around it. How, how does that work with sort of the measurements of these bonds? Is there a, a set framework, or do you have to develop your own in that? Um, so maybe maybe tackling it two different ways. I think I think there are certain subjects that are easier to get one's hand around. Climate, I would argue, is one of those big challenge for the economy. But actually, we've got quite a defined objective 
that we're looking to, to aim for. I think broad ESG, as you say, there are a lot of topics. Um, there are a lot of um, uh, efforts, uh, be it on the environment, environmental side, be it on the social side. Governance, I would argue, is something a bit more traditional. And um, you know, well, where REL1 company is more likely to pay back its debts, its coupons, its principal, you know, which is, as a bondholder, what I like to see. Um, so I think that's that's something that, that it, both investors and, and uh, issuers are, are more used to, to, to dealing with. The other two, I think, you know, we are seeing more standardization um, in terms of disclosures, um, primarily uh, driven by regulation. Um, I think that is a, a sort of sensitive topic so that, um, you know, there's a better disclosure and investors have got a better idea of actually what they're uh, what is being addressed um, we've seen that definitely on the European side uh, we're going to see more more of that coming our way um, in the in, in 2023 uh, and we've got the SEC as well um, starting to sort of formalize what they want to see as well so and companies are responding um, asset managers are responding as well so the amount of data is increasing um, but I would say you know, it's, it's for the asset managers, the asset owners to have a look at that and see how um, they can best use it. Um, and we've certainly developed uh, our own views from a climate perspective. Um, we've got our fr a framework that we've developed so that we have a, a real common sense understanding of what a, a company is looking to achieve um, from a climate perspective, which allows us to get uh, a better handle on what it's going to mean in terms of decarbonization for them, what it means in, ter from, in terms of fundamentals as well um, for, for a company uh, uh, there. Um, and on the ESG front, same thing, um, yeah, so that we've got a homogenous understanding of, of you know, the, the, the topics that we want to focus on. Yeah. And so sort of related to this topic of measurements, um, some of the funds that we speak to, they, they're getting more and more concerned about greenwashing. Absolutely. And we did something recently where one of the asset owners almost lamented, said, you know, all the funds that were last year, infrastructure funds are now climate transition funds. What is going on here? How do you avoid sort of uh, uh, buying into greenwashing bonds? Um, I think disclosure is is, is really um, the, the way out of that. And also doing your research, understanding what you're investing in. There's only so much the metrics are going to give you. You need to have that, that sort of holistic approach and sort of say, look, what is it that they're trying to do? What, how are they implementing it? Um, what's the governance around um, the, 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 um, the element from a climate perspective, for instance, that, that they're looking to engage in? So it, it, it's getting that understanding it's getting that um, and and making it timely you have to keep up with the changes that are going on and, and what companies are doing um, it's changing fast um, it's in some cases changing a lot um, so you, you you have to you have to keep on top of it um, and then it's being able to explain what you're doing and to sort of say look it's quite a it can be quite a nuanced choice at some point um, you know, investing in a company or not um, but I think the importance is to say look this is why we've done it these are the criteria we look at this is um, you know, our selection process and hence this is why it's in your portfolio yeah and we are looking to address you know this element of sustainability yeah can you tell me a little bit about sort of the innovation that takes place in this space? Because we've seen the rise of green bonds, but not every green bond is the same. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So seeing a, a, a number of uh, types of bonds now that are being explored, um, and, and I'm going to say explored, because um, I think some, are, some have got a future, some may not have a future. <laughs> um, I think there is a, 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 you know, some innovation that we need to see what's going to work for issuers and what's going to work for investors as well. Um, I think the green bond space is becoming a bit more standardized. Um, we've got a bit more history. Um, it's something that we've seen before. Um, you're starting to see rules around um, you know, the definition of green bonds, also the validation of um, the parameters that they are uh, in terms of use of proceeds um, with various um, organizations um, affirming the sort of labels from a, a green bond perspective. So I think we're gradually seeing more standardization there. Um, and we have had cases of bonds that have been downgraded um, and that have been excluded from or, or stripped of their green characteristics. Um, so I think there'll be more attention on the issuer side um, to, to make sure that doesn't ha that doesn't happen, because I think from a reputation perspective for them, it doesn't look good. Um, and also there's an education on the asset owner's side to sort of say, okay, well, this, is, this, this makes sense or not. Um, and then um, you know, some of the innovation in terms of other styles of bonds are because you know, some organizations aren't necessarily going to have enough to be able to um, create a green bond package. Uh, so I think some of the innovation there is, is, is interesting to sort of broaden the appeal, broaden the sort of types of um, funding uh, that a, a company can access depending on their size, depending on their activity um, and, and so on. And I think that that's really what's, uh, what, what's driving the, the innovation we're seeing. So when we look at sort of issuance related to this theme of the, the energy transition, is it all about, you know, utilities trying to transition or are there other sectors that are, might not necessarily be obvious? Well, we all need to do that. <laughs> um, and we were talking about the consequences of, uh, of, of the unrest in, in Ukraine. Um, well, you know, there is not a time where we you know, listen to the radio or TV in Europe uh, where we don't get tips about how to use less energy, how to use less gas and how to um, change our habits um, in terms of energy consumption. So individuals um, and households um, you know, need, to, need to participate. And that means looking at real estate, real estate companies. You know, how do you look at the insulation of your, um, of your uh, real estate park um, and, and so on? So it impacts uh, that area uh, as well. Uh, we talked about metals and miners and how they come into the, the, the um, you know, we're going to need metals for this transition. How do they fit in? Uh, building material providers, you know, CO2 is a byproduct of making cement. How is that going to evolve? That, that is definitely one of the sort of harder to abate sectors from a climate perspective. If you look at, well, obviously, your utilities, big thing, but auto companies, you know, we can, we've, got a, we've got a bit of a clearer path as to what they're trying to do in terms of electrification. It really touches our day-to-day -day life across the board. That's why it's so hard. Yeah. Is there on the other side also, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity with the transition as well for investment and, and, and for, for credit. Do you also have a credit that is no longer sort of interesting or that you don't want to touch anymore? Uh, oh, you always have some of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, at this point, two things. Um, one, we are heading towards a more difficult economic environment. Um, so I think security selection in that sense um, is is key at the moment. Um, we've probably sort of seen 
peak fundamentals um, in terms of in terms of companies' balance sheets. Um, I would say that they're coming into this in good shape, um, courtesy of, of all the efforts that have happened um, over the uh, over the COVID period. The fact that companies have been also funding, um, so the sort of funding wall, as it were, has been pushed back to, to call it 24, uh, 2024 or 2025. That's helpful, uh, but um, you know, it is going to be a more challenging environment. So I think um, you know we're definitely looking for uh, companies that have got got balance sheets that can take the hit um so that 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 would be one area to um to, to focus on um and then yes i think that, that you know, in terms of transition there's some business models that um are either lagging or not making the effort or just hoping it's going to go away that's going to get harder and harder yeah 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 so if if we get into that more difficult environment um I, I suppose one of the key concerns for you is is sort of increasing rate of default. Are you already seeing some of that, or is it still at, at sort of more historical levels? Um, we're seeing more companies that are trading at distress levels, which is usually a sign that you know, defaults may pick up. I also think that um, you know, you've had some of the support mechanisms that you've had um, in, in recent years, be it the sort of central bank put, be it also some of the sponsors, um, you know, coming in to retain ownership of a company uh, because they, you know, they, they, you know, the internal yield-seeking behaviour given low rates. I think that has changed. Um, so that's what we would need to be a, a little careful about. Um, so some of the companies that are now tra- trading at distress levels are not going to make it. Yeah. Are there uh, more opportunities as well in in the distressed space? Are you investing in that? Um, we've got I've got colleagues who are investing in the distressed space um, you know, because we're looking primarily on our side um, at sort of higher quality portfolios. That's not necessarily our um, hunting ground, but yes, I'm sure um, there are some some opportunities on the on the distressed side that are that are coming up. I mean, one has to realise um, if you look at, at at spread levels now, um, if you look at high yield, for instance, in in sterling, you're close to ten percent at an index level. Um, uh, if you look at the US, uh, you're in the sort of mid 8% mm-hmm. um, and a little lower on the, on the European side. Um, you know, these are starting to be interesting levels from a, a, a spread perspective. Volatility going forward, yes, but um, you know, if you've got the patience, um, it, it's more likely to sort of generate returns um, in the next sort of 12 to eight, six to 12 months. Those broader spread levels, um, does that also mean that it becomes a bit more interesting to go longer duration? Uh, longer duration. Um, well, we'll start going neutral first in our case on the on the credit side, and then then we might explore. Um, I think we're we're trying to sort of see a, a few more signs of, of the the economy rolling over um, before before doing that um, on our on our credit portfolios. There are some signs, and if you look at sort of consumer confidence, for instance, um, in in various geographies, um, we're, we're sort of hitting new lows. Um, so that 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 sort of you know, illustrates some of the the what might be coming our way. Um, so, but you know, we were talking about it this morning. If you look at the sort of short end of the U.S. curve, and you're around four um, you know, percent for for two years, that doesn't look bad. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. 
I think uh, this is one of the, the first podcasts that I've done face-to-face again after many years of doing Zoom thank podcasts. You. <laughs> so thank you for coming to the office. And you're here in Australia to, to talk to some of your clients as well. What sort of questions are they asking you about the current environment? Um, so one of the big real discussion points we've had um, over the course of this week uh, has been around how to implement uh, climate considerations in fixed income portfolios. Um, I think that really seems to be uh, one of the big focuses um, of um, uh, longer term institutional money um, in the Australia and New Zealand uh, region. So it's been really interesting to see where um, asset owners are in terms of their journey, uh, but it feels as if you know the, this is a, a, a real focus. Um, having dealt with their equity portfolios, um, the, the, the turn now is on, on the fixed income side. So um, it's we've had questions around how to think about it in fixed income. Um, we've had questions about how to implement it Uh, how to measure it in fixed income, Uh, also how to have a balanced approach between maybe not um, sort of overdoing it on the exclusion side, um, because that's quite a blunt instrument, uh, but focusing more on the engagement uh, with companies, um, be it in terms of understanding their strategy and then keeping track of what they're doing um, in terms of their their climate transition. Um, transformation. Um, so that engagement element also coming up um, a lot in the, in the discussions. Yeah, I think the uh, transition is probably one of the the, the main trends and main uh, topics going forward as well for investing. And we probably won't have seen the end of it yet. There will be a big theme going forward. But Henrietta, thank you very much for coming to uh, our studio and talk about this. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me on the on the show. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.